Hello and welcome to It's Lit, where all things literary live at the root. I'm Maisha Kai, Managing Editor of The Glow Up, and today we are talking with author and historian Dr. Keisha N. Blaine. Dr. Blaine is an award-winning scholar of 20th century U.S. history and a 2022 New American National Fellow. She's also an Associate Professor of History at the University of Pittsburgh and is currently in residence at the Carr Center for Human Rights Policy at Harvard University. It should also be mentioned that Dr. Blaine is a returning guest on the podcast. We had her on with Dr. Ibram X. Kendi back in February to talk about their New York Times number one best-selling Community History of African America, 400 Souls. But now Dr. Blaine is back to talk about her latest book, Until I Am Free, Fannie Lou Hamer's Enduring Message to America. I was really excited to talk to Dr. Blaine about this book and about its subject, the still underappreciated Fannie Lou Hamer. I thought Dr. Blaine did such an elegant job of bringing the famed activist to life and really demonstrating in a clear and concise way the importance of her message and her story. I really think there's a lot to take away from this discussion. So without further ado, please enjoy my conversation with Dr. Keisha N. Blaine. Dr. Blaine, welcome back to It's Lit. <laughs> Thank you so much for having me again. No, this is very exciting. You know, we don't, we've, we've only been around just a little over a year, so we haven't had a lot of repeat guests. You might even just be the second at this point. Wow. And the last time that we had you here, it was with uh, Dr. Ibram X. Kendi, and you all were mm-hmm. uh, introducing 400 Souls, which was an instant New York Times bestseller. Congratulations yeah. on that. It was a number one bestseller, I Thank should you. add. A tremendous undertaking. Um, our Michael Harriet was in that book as well. So we were very proud mm-hmm. to help promote that. Uh, but you are back <laughs> to talk about <laughs> your newest offering, uh, which is Until I Am Free, Fannie Lou Hamer's Enduring Message to America. And I really want to get into this because I, Fannie Lou Hamer is such a fascinating figure to me. Yeah. And like you, I did not grow up learning about her. So we're going to discuss yeah. that. And I, and I hope you'll let me call you Keisha at intervals because, you know, I'm real casual here on the podcast. But, <laughs> <That's fine. laughs> but before we do, you know, we did this last time, but since you're here solo this time, you know, we have a little ritual here where we like to pick the brains of our guests and, and mm-hmm. really talk about what inspires you. Like, were there any books that you found particularly groundbreaking or you know, that really kind of like cracked open things for you and made you think differently as a writer yourself? Like what book or books would that be for you? Yeah. So this is actually a book that was published in 1998 uh, entitled To Joy My Freedom. Uh, and this is a book, a history book. It was written by Tara Hunter, who is a Black woman, a historian, who in fact was my uh, advisor in graduate school. Uh, and the reason why I wanted to work with her and the reason why that book I think was so transformative is because it helped me see the possibilities of writing the kind of history that centers Black women and particularly working class Black women. I'd never read a book that told the history of working class Black women um, in in such a beautiful and powerful way. And I wanted to one day write books like that. So I'm thrilled that I had a chance to work with her and uh, highly recommend to join my freedom. I mean, I love that you're recommending something we have not heard before on the podcast. Mm-hmm. That's always fun for us. Um, 
but this is a book I think that's doing that as well. And I, I'm, I, I was so impressed by what you did here. You know, I, at the risk of sounding like a certain tangerine colored president, um, it feels a bit like Fannie Lou Hamer has been having a moment, right? <laughs> like, yeah. you know, I live here in Chicago where currently there's a one woman show, uh, on Fannie right. Lou Hamer taking place. I know that there is an as yet untitled television or, or screen project happening. And you have written this really comprehensive history of her, her impact on the movement. And I think most significantly to, to contemporary readers, her impact on our current conversation, you know, because I think, mm-hmm. you know, we don't always make that through line. And as you note, really early on in the book, like not much has changed. <laughs> so, exactly. you know, um, for our listeners who have not read Until I Am Free yet, why was Fannie Lou Hamer somebody that you felt like you really needed to take a deep dive into? So many reasons. Um, I think Fannie Lou Hamer really encapsulates this idea of speaking truth to power. We, we say it often, but quite frankly, I think there are very few people whose lives convey the possibilities of being able to speak boldly and honestly about injustice and not worrying about you know, the comfort level of the person next to you, not even worrying about the space in which you're speaking, you know, the, the platform. Fannie Lou Hamer spoke uh, powerfully about state-sanctioned violence, about voter suppression, and she did that uh, in, in every single possible moment, whether it was in a private gathering, whether it was at the Democratic National Convention in 64. She was someone who honestly told you like it was. She didn't mince words. And quite frankly, we're at a moment in our nation's history where it's so easy to cover certain things. We, we, you know, we worry about still respectability politics. Uh, we, we often worry about hurting someone's feelings, uh, not actually calling out the problem. And Fannie Lou Hamer pushed all of that aside because she knew that if you didn't address the problem directly, you couldn't actually fix the problem. Uh, and I think her words Certainly, um, her life is a model for for all of us. Uh, and I wanted to write a book that we would be able to turn to, uh, we being every single person committed to social justice. You know, whatever your background, uh, as long as you say that you are committed to social justice, I think you would need to know Hamer's story um, and and learn from her uh, in in the fight. I think in the continued fight for liberation. Yeah, you know, first of all. Yes, to all of that, you know, and especially I would say the respectability politics piece, because as you point out also, you know, mm-hmm. the people that we usually see highlighted um, from the movement, if they're not men, if they are, if they do happen right. to be women, they do happen to fall within this certain realm of like education or or pedigree or, or some, you know, or, or look aesthetic, you know what I mean? Like yes. there are a series of light-skinned women who have gotten that kind of like, oh, you know, she was there, mm-hmm. you know, whether it's. Kathleen Cleaver, Coretta Scott King, right? And so, mm-hmm. you know, here you have Fannie Lou Hamer, who is, you know, this is an unambiguously Black woman. She's heavyset. She's disabled. Mm-hmm. She is impoverished. Um, she's from the South, so she's not, she doesn't have that whole Northern, I've migrated, whatever thing that some of us have, mm-hmm. you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and yet she is one of the most pivotal figures in this movement. And, and really, um, kind of a a glue, you know, what she did in this like really ridiculously short life. I mean, you know, 59 years. It's so interesting to me that she 
died at 59. I, I can't, some, something about my head will not quite wrap itself around that, around that number because she, as far as I'm concerned, she did so much and she, um, and she did so much within a brief time because you're really, you're focusing on this last 15 years of her life when she kind of mm-hmm. discovered this activist within herself. Mm-hmm. But, you know, to your point, we are also in a time in history where people love to throw out this whole idea of like the working class. We're not listening to the working class and da 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 da. And who embodies that better than Fannie Lou Hamer, right? You know, exactly. when it comes to the black working class, because they seem to forget black people can be working class. Right, too, right. right? <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, when you think about what we're going through now, both that conversation and this conversation, which wants to see us even further censor what mm-hmm. kids are taught in schools. And, you know, I didn't, I don't think I heard about family language until I was in college. And I know you say the same here in the yes. book. And even then, I feel like it was kind of just a blip on my radar. And I probably got deeper into it, honestly, as a journalist. So this is like in recent years. And I'm like, oh, yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, yeah. Um, what do you think that contemporary readers and, and contemporary, just anybody who, who cares can learn from Fannie Lou Hamer now? There's so much we can learn. Uh, one of the, I think, strategies that Hamer employed which I would emphasize is is still very powerful, is this notion of uh, public testimony. And, and this is not new by any stretch of the imagination. We, we've sort of seen uh, throughout history the importance of public testimony, but I think it's particularly vital when we talk about the experiences of Black people, the experiences of, of Black women. Hamer went through a lot. You know, as I explained in the book, she was a victim of forced sterilization in 1961. Uh, this is you know, at the time, a very common practice, not only in Mississippi, but across the South, and, and even there were instances across the nation. And Hamer decided to talk about it. It was a very private and painful experience, but she decided to talk about it frequently in order to shine the light on uh, a terrible practice and demand changes. And she also spoke boldly about the experiences that she had you know, when she was uh, beaten brutally uh, in a, a Winona prison cell in 1963. And what we find is someone who would go through all of these experiences and try as much as possible to tell people about it because she wanted everyone to understand what Black people were enduring uh, in this nation. And as I argue in the book, she saw the, the act of giving public testimonies as being transformative to the listener. She saw it as a way to pull a person in And so even if you had a different background, even if you had not experienced police violence, for example, when you heard Hamer talk about police violence and you heard her talk about the the pain, the trauma, uh, there was no way you could be unaffected. There was was just a power to how she told the story that you would be pulled in and then you'd be compelled to act. You'd be compelled to do something. And I think we we certainly can learn from that. Uh, you know, I think about, for example, the George Floyd, the, you know, the, the unfortunate video that circulated across the nation and actually across the globe. And that in and of itself, I think, was a moment where people were galvanized. People were coming together and pointing out, look at, you know, look at what is happening in this country. We have to bring about a change. And that was only possible because someone was courageous enough to film it, certainly. But also when we got to the trial, we we saw all of these courageous people. And, and I do have to emphasize courageous because they were essentially standing up and saying the police officers were lying. That's not what happened. 
and they were publicly testifying. And they were doing so because they were committed to making sure that people understood what had taken place of what happened to George Floyd, certainly, but also uh, to the larger point, what is happening to black and brown people in this country. And I think uh, that was a powerful moment. We know that clearly there is still a lot of work to be done, but I think um, Hamer's story of emphasizing the power of speaking about the painful experiences not easy, but it truly is one strategy for dismantling systems of oppression. Getting the smile and confidence you've been dreaming about all from the comfort of your home isn't a total mystery with bite clear aligners. Just don't be surprised if all your friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Bite Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. You know, you tied this into something that obviously we've all just lived through very recently, this this moment in history that has been so devastating on so mm-hmm. many levels, but also devastating because it's not new, because it's the culmination of, you know, it's like so many people have been screaming into the void for so long right. um, about police brutality, about inequality, about, all, you know, all these things that we saw. And, you know, last year, and even when we spoke in February, you know, there was this we were kind of coming out of this moment where everybody thought, oh, oh things are different, you know, <laughs> things yeah. are, oh, this time it's different. It's, it's, it's changed. It's, we're, we're now galvanized. And, and for a moment, I think people were until mm-hmm. once again, they didn't need to be. And now we're like, you know, almost a year and a half out from that tragedy. And there does seem to, to feel like this sense of like, I don't want to say complacency, but maybe complacency is the word, <laughs> the word. Yeah. And, and, you know, you, again and again in this book, you, you really pull through these strategies, you know, for the middle of the last century that are still following through to, like, mm-hmm. the Black Lives Matter movement, to these conversations we're having now, you know, whether it's how we're educating people or, or how we're activating. Um, do you think that there's a way to keep people galvanized? Because as you, as you know, and as we know, unfortunately it does take this sort of weird like triggering of guilt from this dominant populace, you know, mm-hmm. to, to, to get anything done. And yet it's like, we keep having to do it again and again and again. Yes. It's, it's, it's so difficult. Um, but you know, here I go back to Hamer's experience. One of the things that really, I think, um, moved me was looking at what she endured in 1964, particularly I think most people who know about Hamer know her in the context of the Democratic National Convention. She gives this fiery speech in August 1964, and it's a speech that terrifies the president of the United States. I mean, Lyndon B. Johnson tried to divert attention away from Hamer because he it was clear to him that this was uh, a person who would, would speak so powerfully that it would get people to act. And in fact, that's what she did. Even 
despite the attempt to to block her speech, uh, once the speech aired later that evening on television, I think so many people could not look away. Uh, what is so fascinating is that even though this is the moment that catapults her political career, it's also one of the most painful experiences for her because she ultimately doesn't get what she wanted. I mean, she, she didn't get what she wanted. She went to Atlantic City on behalf of the Mississippi Freedom Democratic Party. This is a party that she helped establish to ultimately challenge the all-white Democratic Party in the state of Mississippi. And, you know, we know during this period, Southern Democrats were working very hard to exclude Black participation. And Hamer called that out. Uh, She wanted to bring about some changes. You know, she was pointing out the fact that there was an estimated 450,000 people, um, Black people in the state of Mississippi, and their voices needed to be heard. And when she showed up at the convention, she wanted uh, the Mississippi Freedom Democratic Party to be seated. In a nutshell, they did not get what they wanted. They were offered two seats, two symbolic seats, which was a compromise. Hamer refused the compromise, and uh, she was attacked for her approach, not only from the white people who were there, but she was criticized by other civil rights activists who felt like she needed to just take the compromise and not be so difficult. Uh, But when she walked away from that convention, she felt defeated because it almost seemed as if she worked so hard and yet just couldn't, you know, she couldn't make the progress that she wanted to make. What she didn't see in August 1964 is that a year later, there would be a passage of the Voting Rights Act of 1965, which, of course, uh, ends up being this very important development in the civil rights movement, so much so that, you know, to this day, we're fighting to protect it. And, and so I guess the, the, the point in, in emphasizing the story is that when you're in the struggle, there's only so you can only see so far out. Right. When you're when you're in the struggle and you're trying to bring down these walls, you can't always tell if you've actually hit it enough uh, for it to crack. I mean, sometimes there are these clues that it's breaking and other times you don't really know that it's going to fall until it actually falls. And that is why it's so important to have hope. You know, that's why it's important to keep pushing, because you cannot simply say, well, the challenges are many, so we have to give up. We're not making progress. Um, If Hamer had that approach, then certainly a lot of things would not have been accomplished. I think in her story, we see the power of perseverance, knowing that you cannot simply wait for the moments or the, the signs that tell you that things are going well. You just have to keep pushing and pushing and pushing until it breaks. It could be two years. It could be 20 years. We don't actually know, but we could we, we could literally be just days away from a transformative right uh, development and something could change that we would forever talk about. Something could change in, in, in American policing. Right. Something could change uh, when it comes to housing discrimination. We don't quite know. We just know that there is a problem and we have to fight to bring about the changes. So I think you know, that is ultimately the message is that we can't let up. And as we can tell, given the continued struggles for voting rights today, even after we win, we have to fight to protect those wins. Yeah. I mean, and and yes, th- that part is so striking to me that, you know, you and I are speaking amidst this whole like negotiation going on in Congress, you know, this whole build back better bill that, right. that in many ways feels very regressive. <laughs> you know, it's like, this is not, you know, some of the things that we're having to concede feel like 
why'd you even bother? Like, why'd you, why'd you, why'd you bother bringing it up? You know, whether it's, we're talking about, you know, paid family leave or things like that, because, you know, I mean, and, and Hamer being the youngest of 20 children, like these are not, mm-hmm. these are not small issues, right? These are not small issues that are affecting uh, Americans today. One of the things I did find really interesting, and I guess, you know, I hadn't really thought of it that way. I guess it, it, it was fairly common in that time not to call yourself a feminist per se, but the position that Fannie Hamer holds in terms of women's rights, in terms of this advocacy that was, yes, incredibly centered on race, but also centered in gender, you know, as, as she's mm-hmm. one of these legions of women who end up taking a backseat to all these male leaders of the day. And yet, <laughs> and yet she's, she's one of the most forceful figures. I mean, is it fair? I mean, Granted, she didn't look at herself that way, but is it fair to look at Fannie Lou Hamer as a, as a feminist icon? Because I can't help but look at her <laughs> that way, you know? Yeah, I think so. Um, you know, one of the things that I find so striking about her story is, uh, you know, as you point out, she did not self-identify as a feminist, yet, ironically, her words as well as her deeds ended up making her a feminist icon. And so much so that I think she inspired a generation, you know, of feminists. I think about someone like uh, Barbara Smith, you know, who's one of the founders of the Kambahi River Collective, who uh, credits Hamer uh, as as being one of the pivotal figures for shaping her own ideas. And Hamer certainly demonstrated, I think, what a feminist, uh, you know, commitment looks like, and and I would say a, a true feminist commitment, not one that simply. Uh, grapples with sexism and patriarchy, but one that is that is truly in, intersectional, right? I mean, this is through um, the language of uh, legal scholar Kimberly Crenshaw. This is you know Hamer's conceptualizing all of this many years before, but the notion that you cannot separate uh, the forms of oppression, you cannot talk about a person's life and experiences and only focus on how they might be experiencing discrimination, for example, because of their race, and not uh, address certainly, you know, gender, sexuality, uh, ability, class. I mean, you know, there are all of these different dimensions that make up a person's life. And if you're really going to be committed to any kind of feminist politics, you have to grapple with the whole, right? You have to grapple with the whole individual and, and everything that they are experiencing uh, and work for liberation across all of these lines. And if you're missing anything, you know, then clearly, this is a problem, and that's the core of, of, of Hamer's philosophy when she says nobody's free until everybody's free. Uh, and so I still do think that it's absolutely accurate to talk about her as a feminist icon, even as we acknowledge that she herself would not have called, um, you know, she would not have, have, have called herself a feminist. Uh, but as I point on the book, she, she, she struggled to call herself a feminist at a moment where she saw, she didn't see her interests in this, you know, predominantly white women's liberation movement. Uh, she didn't see that they were uh, concerned about black and brown women. She didn't see that they were concerned about working class women. And some of these critiques remain salient. I mean, to this very day, there are people who will tell you that they don't accept the label feminist. And oftentimes it is because of the, the sort of mainstream representations that tend to erase black women, erase women of color broadly. So, uh, so I think you're, you're right. We can talk about her still and just acknowledge the complexities and also acknowledge that some of her views ran counter to um, certainly the women's liberation movement uh, then, um, they st- and they do still 
run counter to some of the ideas, you know, that that made that for the most part, I think feminists would advocate, and particularly I'm talking about, you know, Hamer's rather conservative views, you know, on abortion as well as even um, birth control. She was against both, and that was that was certainly going against, you know, the the general uh, understanding that part of the call for women's autonomy is also having control over their bodies. Uh, so that's just to add some complexity to her story. But but I think overall, it's absolutely correct to talk about her as a feminist icon. I mean, she is complex. I mean, she yeah. and, I, and I love that because I think it's so important not to flatten, you know, our heroes right. and, this, and this worship of them. It's, it's, it's very important that that those complexities be recognized. Um, I want to actually scope out a little bit because, you know, I mean, obviously, I think for you, this process you know, I would assume it maybe came a little orga- more organically for you than it did for a lot of other people, but, or, or than it might, excuse me, for a lot of other people. But, you know, because you are a historian, um, you are an academic, um, but this is a re- such a multi-layered approach. Um, and I really want to talk about craft a little bit here in terms of mm-hmm. the way you crafted this particular narrative, because it's a multi-layered approach. And yet you managed to do it. I thought I was actually really impressed with how compact this mm-hmm. was as a volume because obviously, it, you know, anybody could pull out 400, 500 <laughs> pages on on most <laughs> historical figures. You managed to do this, yeah. I want to say, within 150 or less, just like mm-hmm. it was tight. And I was so impressed. Um, and and can, we, I, can we talk a little bit about that approach? Like yes. Yes. How, that, how that process unfolded? Was it deliberate that you, that you made yes. it so compact? Like, why did you want to craft it this way? So lots of reasons. Uh, one of the things that I have tried to do over the last couple of years is to write uh, for multiple audiences at, at once. Uh, as you point out, I, I am an academic, uh, but I always want to write in a way that academics can certainly, you know, appreciate, but more to the point that anyone can um, can appreciate. I, I want to write for the person who has little knowledge of the history. I want to write for the person with a third grade education. You know, I want to write for the person who's, you know, teaching courses at a college level. All of these people are, are in my mind as I'm crafting narratives. And so I'm thinking about clarity, certainly, but I'm also thinking about length. Um, and one of the things that I know uh, is true for me, and I suspect it's true for many people, um, it's hard to sit down and necessarily read 400 pages of a book. I mean, you you can do it, but I think I didn't want to write a traditional biography that I, I figured might be appealing to some readers and not others. I wanted to to write something that you could literally you could sit on the train you know, if you're traveling, um, and you could read that book. Maybe just even in a few rides, you could read the full book. Uh, and get something out of it, and and you didn't need to necessarily carve out, you know, several weeks of your life to to get through it. And and I was also thinking about teachers. I was thinking about educators and how they might be able to use chapters in classrooms. I was thinking about how people might be able to have reading groups in their communities, and um and I wanted it to be certainly meaty, but but not overwhelming. And and so you're absolutely correct. I was thinking about the various audiences, and and also. I think because I've been writing, you know, I've been writing op-eds um, for the last several years, that practice has forced me to um, not only be clear, but also to be brief. And there's a way you can give a lot of information uh, with, I think, 
fewer words. Uh, that is certainly um, a skill. I mean, journalists are very good at this and I'm still learning from them. Um, but I tried to the best of my ability to write a book that I think uh, would pack a lot of information, but not be overwhelming. And and you really succeeded while also drawing in, Thank I think, you. you know, when I think about it from the academic perspective, per se, like, you know, like if I was encountering this book as a high school student or as a college mm-hmm. student, you know, that A, it would be refreshing <laughs> in terms right. of the length, <laughs> but also that you are pulling in so many contemporary voices as well and so many people that like, you you're not asking us to just like dig in the vault. You're also like, oh, right. but then let's bring that through to right now, you know? And obviously right now, there's a question of whether a, a book this amazing, which I, I mean, I really, I, I, I'm so impressed and congratulations on this effort. Um, but you know, where, where do you see this book landing? Where would you like it to land, you know, in a time where we're sitting here having these contentious conversations about whether we can tell the truth about American history? Yeah. I certainly hope that um, the book will be on syllabi, certainly at the college level, but also high schools. I recognize, you know, as you point out, there is just this continued effort to shy away from um, the truth of our history. It's somewhat odd to me that certain people want to cherry pick. We can talk about this, but not but not something else. And I think it's important for everyone to know Hamer's story. I think it's impossible to even imagine and build a future without a full understanding of where we've been. And uh, I hope that the book will be read widely by people from all different backgrounds. Uh, I I think this is a book that I would argue would even be relevant for people outside of the U.S. context, because, you know, really what Hamer is talking about to the core is a message of human rights. It's a message of how we all come together to make sure that Every single one of us can exist, and that, of course, is important, existing, but even more so that every single one of us can thrive in society. And, uh, and I, I hope that people will be open to listening to Hamer, especially. Uh, so that's, that's all I can hope for. But I, I do recognize, <laughs> you know, I, I would not be surprised, you know, if it ends up on the list of, of books that, that, that people fear uh, to teach in the classroom, especially those who are trying to avoid telling these, these, these stories that shed light on you know, the history and the legacy of racism and discrimination and, and all of that. I think for those people, this is a terrifying book, but it doesn't have to be. Yeah, I mean, I just really uh, thank you for, for bringing this to everyone's attention and doing it in such a, a vibrant and contemporary way. So Dr. Keisha Implane, thank, thank you again you. for returning to It's Lit to discuss Until I Am Free, Fannie Lou Hamer's enduring message to America. I highly recommend that our listeners pick up this book and and pass it on. Pass it on to like the young people in your life because they, they're not, they might not get it in school. They're going to they have to get it from us. So thank you so much for coming back to speak with us. Thanks again for having me. there. It's Julia Louis-Dreyfus. You may know me from my podcast called Wiser Than Me, where I talk to older women and get their wisdom from the front lines of life. I was amazed by how many people told me our show made them look forward to getting older, which is why I'm here to talk about season two of the show. Sally Field, Billie Jean King, Beverly Johnson, Ina Garten, Bonnie Ray, just to name a few. All hail old women. 
Wiser Than Me Season 2 is out now from Lemonada Media. The Root Presents It's Lit is produced by myself, Maisha Kai, and Michaela Heck. Our sound engineer is Ryan Allen. Our theme song was penned by yours truly and producer Scott Jacoby. If you like the show and want to help us out, please give us a rating on Apple Podcasts. It really, really helps us out. Now, if you have any thoughts or feedback, you can always find me on Twitter at Maisha, that's M-A-I-Y-S-H-A, and at Maisha Kai on Instagram. And before we go, we always like to talk a little bit about what we're currently reading. Now, admittedly, I haven't had a chance to read much lately. I've been catching up with so many great books coming out. But one thing I'm looking forward to getting into is All That She Carried by Tia Miles. This is another book that really centers us back in the legacy of American slavery. And, uh, you know, it's interesting that we are seeing so many books coming out about this particular time in history at a time that history is being suppressed so much. So that's something we'll be talking about uh, in the coming weeks with some of our authors. But in the meantime, that's it for this week. Thanks so much for listening and we'll see you next week. In the meantime, you know what to do. Keep it lit.